Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to this week's episode. Hey, guess what? Before we get into it, you might have heard, I am drafted to the two Ramagpies as a part of the Carlton Draft. I'm going to be playing a game, dominating, kicking six, and then resetting at quarter time. For the first time in Carlton Draft history, one lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT, Erin Phillips, to play as a wild card. How bloody good's that? If you want to enter this now to get her down to your football club, visit thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com. You. 18 plus, drink responsibly. G'day guys, welcome back to the best of episodes. This is best of entertainment. Honestly, entertainment, we had no idea what to call this episode. We've got guests from everywhere, books, podcasters, sexologists. Yeah, just about everything. Radio stars, XAFL players, musicians. So it's been cool. This has probably been like the favorite sort of thing for me this year is like branching out into doing new guests. So I love, you know, getting so many people on from different sort of backgrounds. Like I know it's not diverse as such, but definitely diverse from what we've been doing, but always keen to grow that out a lot more and as much as we can. So we released another um, best of episodes last week, best of sport. Make sure you check that one out. Had some cool athletes on, but yeah, this one today includes Mark Howard, Jack Post, Mark Wales, Chantal Otten, uh, our first musical guest, Talanova, and Brandon Jack. But yeah, it's been huge. So basically I'll take you through them. Number 97, Mark Howard, who obviously is in the OG of podcasting games, podcasting games, podcasting, for Howie Games, been a big, you know, inspiration for me and, yeah, just been a good mentor going through and just, you know, hearing his story about how he started, which is not very similar to mine, but I suppose in a way, like, you know, starting from the bottom and, and working your way up and just trying to upskill yourself in as much as possible. And he even spoke about, you know, it's been a, a really good thing for him and something he, he looks to now and has helped him a lot was not getting a start early because he had to really earn it and and make sure he really nailed it, you know, the whole whole time in his career. And he's not just good at, at what he does now, but if he had to go pick up a camera, he'd still probably be able to do it, which I'd be interested to know if he would really do that. 106, Jack Post. Absolutely love Jack Post. He just is one of the funniest dudes of all time. I still can't, you know, laugh so much about when he came to the studio. I was just like, he did like this TikTok and was just filming everything. But yeah, he's a ripper dude and absolutely loved his, to- uh, his time on the show. He spoke about working with Hamish and Andy and, yeah, similar to... Howie's story as well spoke about like getting a start in the media and how hard it is to to get into radio but his start there and you know he's made a career of it now working with you know Christian O'Connell as well on his breakfast show and Hamish Nandy and doing some awesome stuff number 95 Mark Wales this was one of my favorite podcasts of the year and I think this was Sam's favorite podcast of the year he's an ex SAS soldier in Australia and it, it's unbelievable you know what our defense force put themselves through and, and do for us and you know Unbeknowing to the extent of what they really do for us is is incredible. And shout out to anyone out there that works in our defence force listening. You know, massive respect for everything you do. And I think everyone would after hearing this episode of of what um, you know Mark's been through with his time. He spoke about some of his most in tours, uh, sorry, most intense tours that he's he's been through. He spoke about you know suffering from PTSD post a lot of his tours, and then spoke about you know how dangerous not just you know combat is, but even the training to get into it. So. Definitely check this one out. Next up, which was a very different podcast, but one that I really love this year and get so many messages about to this day, how much it's really benefited and how much people like this podcast with Chantal Otten, number 94. She's a psychosexologist and, and basically works a lot around love and 
and sex and intimacy and love languages as well. And yeah, it was just really cool to get her in. And, and she spoke about love languages, which was something that I've been really interested in, you know, how people accept love and how they give love and how to have the best relationships going forward. And she also spoke a lot about like most common problems that people come to see her for, especially us males that we might not you know, want to talk about a lot. So yeah, definitely check that one out. I really love this chat with, with Chantel. She's doing incredible things. Episode 104 with Talanova, um, our musical guest, as I said a few times, the first one we had on the show. I'd love to keep getting as much musical guests on Dylan Friends as we can. They spoke about their journey um, into music, how to start a band, you know, how to even make money. Just so many questions I had about it was, was really cool. But this little snippet speaks about Joshua Mariotti, who is um he was an absolute legend spoke about a story of, of him in la meeting robert pattinson who is the guy from twilight and yeah very funny story there so make sure you check that one out and and last up we had brandon jack episode 105 who's in inter- entertainment now because you know he's he's an ex-athlete but also wrote a book and that's you know very impressive and, and loved getting him on to speak about his new book but something we really bonded over which was you know really embarrassing i suppose but also vulnerable and, and hopefully just gives insight into where your mindset at is when, when when you're playing elite sport was talking about being on the fringe and the thoughts that go through your head about your teammates and even your friends you know like hoping other people are getting injured and you know just because you want to do so well yourself but it was, it was weird to you know say some of those things out loud because we just never spoken to them and admitted them before but yeah to, to hear that and then hear so many other players reach out and say that they'd experienced the exact same thing was was really eye-opening so yeah check these podcasts out hope you enjoy them hope you have an incredible break hope you're on a road trip somewhere with your head out the window with the sun on your face and having fun so yeah thanks so much love it thanks so much to all the guests for coming on this year enjoy this episode check it out you episode 106 jack post you're never going to walk into a radio station or like a tv set or whatever it is and just be the person who's on air like you got to go through that thing of doing all the jobs and i did all of them like my first thing was cutting up podcasts for hamish and andy and uploading them um i would do audio production i would answer phones i would stay and panel shows you know pushing the buttons for shows that were coming from from sydney um overnight like i just tried to do everything in the arena always try and do my best job that i can at it always try and be available and not expect anything in return i did a lot of working for free not saying that this is the right way to do it and this is the right thing for for businesses to exploit people and make them work for free but it works because if you're that person who's always putting yourself out there eventually an opportunity is going to make way and you can grab it with both hands So this you have to go back a fair way. Yeah. I was on the on season one of Gap Year, and yeah. then they canned me and said, "Okay, you can just work behind the scenes now. You're not good enough to yeah. be on television." And in that episode, they Hamish had bought this um, three wheeled like motorbike slash police car that can go up on sidewalks. <laughs> and so I they they tasked me of like, "You got to look after this vehicle for us." Um, as a joke, you're like you'll be the security guard of it. And then what I didn't realize was a further joke was they hired two guys to come and steal it off me when it felt like the TV show had already ended for the night. They were just actors, but you know, one guy was pretending to hold a knife under his jumper, <laughs> and he said, "Do." He told me, "Do the right thing." <laughs> I'll never forget that. He's like, "Do the right thing. Like you'll get stabbed if you don't give this to me." But I didn't let him steal the car, so I got in the green room, and everyone was like, "I kind of was like a little bit of a hero for the <laughs> night." Episode ninety-seven, Mark Howard. Big key messages, and I suppose lessons you've learnt from guests. We spoke huh. about it earlier. We speak about it again because I feel like it's 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 the reason you do 
um, podcasting, you know, in a selfish way. Um, and it's not selfish because everyone else gets to listen to it, but it's selfish because you're there experiencing it and you get to ask the questions. Has there ever been something that really stands out to you in an interview or a chat with someone where you've just been like, fuck, I needed to hear that. That was huge for me. I always finish mine, we're lucky, as you do, to have a lot of kids listen with their parents. So my last question of the podcast is always, for all the youngsters out there, what advice would you give? I should compile that into a motivational book because I've had answers that have blown me away. The general, I'll give you two answers to that. The overall theme that I take from my podcast, which is when we're saying if you had your time again and the things you would have learnt, is... For every Ricky Ponting that was always going to play for Australia because he was so talented, there are 99 John Aloisis who had to work every step of the way to get where they are. So my main takeaway from the podcast as a a general rule but a really strong rule is those that work the hardest achieve the most success. That is, it's such a cliche deal, but it's a cliche because it is true. Like John Aloisi, his brother was a better footballer than he was growing up. But he said, I worked harder than my brother. You know, he scored the goal to put us in the World Cup. The piece of advice, and it, it maybe because it's in my mind, because it's actually the episode as we sit here today, it comes out today. So I recorded last week with Daniel Kowalski. And his view on the world was, it doesn't matter what you do in the world, what level of success you do or don't have, the way he judges success is on how nice a person you are to those that you come across. And it's I, I haven't said it as elegantly as he said it, but his basic message was be a good person and everything else will take care of itself, whether it's in the sporting field, the business field, any other field. And that, that really hit me because... I work in a really competitive industry and it's it's like your industry, it's dog eat dog. And it just hit me just to be nice, to be, just be nice, be a nice person mm. and things will go your way. And even if things don't go your way, people always say, you know what, that Howie, he's a pretty good bloke. Episode 94, Chantal Otten. What would you say to someone then that is listening today that probably hasn't, you know, has just thought that this is the norm for them, this is the way it's going to be? Mm-hmm. issues that are arising that they might not know is an actual issue that can be fixed what would you say to them i w- i would definitely say come in and see a sexologist and if you don't get an answer from your sexologist find a different one it's like seeing a doctor you know not everyone's going to fit not everyone's going to give you what you need and not everyone specializes in your area i know that like there are some things that i'm not great at you know practicing with so I refer to one of my colleagues Mm. instead Um, and I do think it is about just knowing that it's completely normal to have these bumps in the road and all we need to do is just like move over the top of them with some help you need a big push and you need someone who's going to get in the passenger seat and do it with you so I always say to my patients when they come in it's you and me against the problem now or it's you me and your partner against the problem it's not us against each other it's not you and your partner against each other this is not something we ask for it's literally like a dark cloud that is hanging over the top of you and we want it to go away and even now, like when you say this and you're so comfortable with this, but I suppose being, you know, growing up as, as a male and not being as comfortable with my sexuality as, as you are now because you've obviously studied this and it's mm. you talk to people I about it every day. You practice <laughs> most days. 
Why do you think it's so hard for us to talk about? Is it just the way we've we've grown up? You know, not really being able to talk about this openly. You know, I, I've throwbacks to, to sex ed and it was one of those classes where I was like fuck I need to get into this and learn some stuff but would never ask a question yeah you know you sit there and you're like please just teach me but I don't want to ask anything yeah yeah because I mean it was really like if you look back at media from back in the day what were you we watching like um was it American Pie what's yeah. was that a, was yeah. that the movie you yeah. know how they were like everything was like so taboo and it was like so wild and there was a guy and he fucked a pie and it was like you know crazy like that is a media that we grew up with we looked at sex as more of a joke mm. we looked at women's safety and consent as a joke we looked at you know men and how they were meant to conquer sex and be passionate and be rough and you know it was very much about the penis owner and that is like the foundation that we grew up with we also have inadequate sex education in australia so you're really left like questioning you know i know like how to make a baby and i know maybe to put on a condom but i don't know how to ask for it and i don't know how to do it and i don't know what happens if it goes wrong as well or who i turn to and then maybe if you turn to a doctor you go in and you ask them you know why why do i have erectile dysfunction or why have i got premature ejaculation and they've had a one-hour lecture on sexual medicine in their medical degrees. So they're not quite sure on what to do either. So you're kind of thrown, if you have a problem with sexuality, into this real whirlwind of inadequate sex education along like multiple modalities, if that makes sense. No one's an expert. Um, and I also think when sex is good, it takes up like 10% of your mental capacity. When sex is not going good, it like takes up 80% or 90%. You're thinking about it all the time and there's a lot of shame and like pushing it down and you can't talk to your friends about it because they wouldn't understand and your partner takes it personally and it can be a really vicious cycle. Love languages. It's something that I'm super interested in I've done the most basic of research on how this works because I suppose I talk to my partner Justine about this a lot. We are, you know, she's the love of my life, the most beautiful woman in the world. We are so, you know, I'm so happy we're beautiful, but I annoy the fuck out of her. Like, I am the most over-affectionate. Like, I just, every time I see her, I just want to be, like, hugging her, tell her how much I love her, and she's had to put in boundaries. We've got rules now, like, I'm only allowed to hug her three times a day like, because like, it just gets too much. Um, and I know that I like I just want to hug her and just be with her because I'm an affectionate person. Mm. But it's actually – the more I do that, it's actually pushing her away more. Yeah. And for her, like she's – you know, the way she shows love is she – you know, she, she does things. She's just a real doer. Like she'll – plan us to go out for nice lunches and you know buy beautiful things for the house and that's how she expresses her love yeah. so i'm always like in this battle of being like two people in a relationship it's off probably often that they've got different ways of, of showing their love yeah how important is this to understand what your love language is and how you receive love and what your partner's is as well so should I explain a little bit more about what love language is? I think is? we should. I've probably just jumped right into it, yeah. All right. So love languages is a questionnaire. It's a quiz that was made up by a psychologist. It's really actually spot on. Basically, it explains that the way that we show love to others is the way that we want to receive love. So you are saying to me, 
I want some hugs. I want some some cuddles. I want some kisses. I want some skin on skin. That is how you want Justine to show you love. So you're putting that onto her. But, you know, she's saying, I, you know, she loves doing acts of service. So maybe she wants you to do more acts of service. Basically, we have to look at what our partner wants from us in order to feel loved. And we have to find a balance there. So it comes up with our top priorities. And if we look at the results, of the quiz um, the love languages are acts of service physical affection receiving gifts words of affirmation and physical touch and I'm a big believer in doing love languages because I think that it actually sorts out a lot of relationship problems as well but the key is to actually come to an agreement together if you need more than three hugs in a week like in a day sorry to feel love then that is something that you need to negotiate with your partner especially if you're having a rough week like you might go babe i know i've hit my max today but i just need like 10 i need 10 hugs today or i need to just lie down next to you for a little bit or we need to snuggle on the couch and i'm going to do some more acts of service for you as well to make sure that you're feeling loved and cared for and i think that um once you can find out what your partner's love language is it is about the communication around that you have your top love languages but i also believe in incorporating all the love languages Mm. just obviously putting um, a preference on the top uh, results for your partner with that as well when there's times where you always want what you can't have so then there's times where i'm on the couch i just want to be by myself and then Mm. she'll try and you know your partner tries to cuddle you and you're like please remove yourself from me i just Mm. want my own time right now Mm. but i found the best thing for me in my relationship and she's the most private person in the world so she's going to be absolutely hating this right now but i know that when you know she's had a bad day or been upset straight away i'll go home clean the house make the bed Mm. cook dinner and that's like the biggest way that i can show love to her so i think it's just the importance as you said is finding what is the strongest one for your partner Mm. and and knowing that what that can make them happy the most totally and you know what you described to me before as well is you're sometimes like i really need a hug and she'll distance herself so that's classic pursuer distance behavior hello my beautiful friends and family guess what i am back i am back third time lucky my third time drafted in my life i'll be making a return to footy as a part of the Carlton Draft, along with some big household names. Not as big as my name, but uh, some quite big names. Isaac Smith, Trent Cotchen, Matty Lloyd, Lee Montagna. Some of the all-time greats of our game, as I've just mentioned. One lucky Victorian women's community club will get the chance to draft the AFLW GOAT Aaron Phillips to play as a wild card. How bloody good is that? If you're a part of women's community footy and you are keen to get Aaron down, enter now at thecarltondraft.com.au. That's thecarltondraft.com.au. 18 plus, drink responsibly. Episode 105, Brandon Jack. What are some of those feelings and thoughts you had when, when getting omitted or um, not selected or, or let down um, in your eyes? What, what was going through your head? I mean, there's different stages of it, hey, and, and some of the darker places you go to are like, you know, you're in a team, but you see yourself as working against that team. And it's like, for example, in my third year, Isaac Heaney came in and played round one and I thought that that spot was mine. Like I'd had this great preseason. The the media was saying I was going to take the next step. But Heans played and Heans is a far better player than I was. But in my mind, I'm convincing myself that spot's mine. I'm like, fuck you guys. I'm the best small forward in this team. That's my spot. So then I'm watching the game from the grandstands and, and every time Heans is near the footy, I'm like, don't touch it. 
I'm like, I hope he doesn't touch it. Or I'm counting his stats. I know how many stats he's had in my head. And I'm kind of like, all right, if he doesn't get any more, then, you know, they might drop him because I've been dropped for having 12 touches before. Like, it might happen. So, you know, you start because you want to be in that team so badly, hey, and somebody's in your spot. Um, you know, and, and then other times I remember I, I wrote like fuck horse a few times in my diary because I was like, he's not picking me, even though he's not the one really making the complete decision. But you pick people to be like, I'm going to prove you wrong. Like, I'm going to make you look stupid. I'm going to have 40 touches in the resis, all these sorts of thoughts. And it's pretty fucking toxic when you think about it. But it's just how I would put myself on the edge. Unbelievable, mate. It, it's, it's so true. And I, I don't know how you know people listening to this I, I really hope that someone can relate to this but and, I, and i'm sure they do because it's not a feeling that is uncommon i know so many guys that would have felt like this but i can mm. literally recall the same things in my head just and, and it's not you it's not you as a person like yeah it's like survival you, you just want to survive and that's what yeah. it turns into and and even on that whole scenario like again it's it's not your personal decision it's just what what your mind does it's well, it's, it's you you're in this environment where it's like we used to do trademarks, personal trademarks all the time. So everyone would have to have their thing, which is like, and even if it wasn't true, you had to say like, I am the best two-way midfielder in the competition. And you had to like say that about yourself and you had to believe it. But you know, that's not true for everyone and it can't be true for everyone. So people who, you know, that self-talk doesn't line up with the reality, you get pushed to this point, you know, and it, and that's where I, I took it out on some people around me. But the thing, that's the thing, you, you talk about footy clubs and they're your best mates as well. Like my best mates were the people I were competing against for a spot. And there's not many workplace environments with that dynamic. But it, it, yeah, exactly right. And it, it's, it's crazy. Like you, you are, you're competing for, you know, one team, one dream. Like that's the goal is to win this flag. But, the, you know, I was chatting to, to Sam before, he's a producer, and, and he was saying, fuck, like, do you guys actually think like that? Like that's, that's unbelievable. But mm. in a way, it's nearly healthy because it push it the drive to get into that's the team the that's what makes yeah. it so strong so it's like what do you it's like you don't want this but also like coaches would be looking going fuck we need this yeah for sure and that's something i don't ever want to come across as being like we shouldn't motivate ourselves like that because it does it, it pushes you towards greatness um i just think that you know there's a a balance to be found or a like a gray area where it doesn't have to be so all-consuming um like i i still you know i with, with my writing, for example, I still do a lot of the same things. And I'm like, if I get a rejection letter about a piece I've published, I'm like, I'm going to show you how good a writer I am. I'm mm-hmm. going to write this piece that blows you away. And, and that works for me. Um, but it's finding that off switch, I reckon, and being able to go, that's when I'm playing footy, that's when I'm writing. And that's got nothing to do with, you know, how I am as a, as a partner or a friend or, or, or things like that. Yeah, yeah. No, you're so right. And I, I experience the same things now with, with podcasting, for example. You move into a new world and you're in business and I still have these thoughts about other things, but I go, well, is this actually, do I actually not like this person or this group or yeah, is it yeah, more yeah. a reflection of me that I'm like vulnerable in this situation? Yeah. It's, it's, it's <laughs> checking the podcast charts and seeing where you rank, dude, you do that. Yeah. 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 Fuck <laughs> this guy. It's sort of easy when you're at number one all the time, but it's, you know, <laughs> but I'm thinking like when you drop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It won't happen, mate. You'll be fine. When you were saying uh, about the footy, and again, we don't want to act like you know you didn't enjoy your footy at all, but was yep. there a stage where it did change for you? Like, were you enjoying it up to a stage and then there was something that happened or did, did the all-encompassing stress just come too much? It was, you know, my first few years in a professional environment were pretty anxious, you know. I was always yeah. 
never a certainty of getting picked and was always in that fringe spot. I think there was a, there is a specific moment that I reckon kind of was a big turning point. It kind of broke me a bit at the end of my third year. So I reckon I played maybe nine or 10 games, probably nine games in a row at the end of 2015. And it felt like, you know, I was finally cementing myself in the team. Um, and I played this shocking final. I think we were in uh, in West Australia against Freo and I played so poorly and I got dropped the, for the final the following week against North Melbourne. And from that point on, I kind of really turned my back on footy. Like I had two more years of a contract, but I like clocked out and I got this phone call from Horse when I was at Bondi Junction and I knew it was coming. I knew I was going to get dropped. Um, and it was a real quick conversation. And he said, like, we're picking Rosie, James Rose. He's got more firepower up forward. Hope, do you understand? And I was like, yeah, whatever. Um, and I kind of, I went off the rails a bit after that. And I think at the same time, that's when I started really jumping into music as well. So I found an escape there. Um, but that's probably after that is when I really started drinking heavily as well and doing all these things that you know you used to escape talk us through that man like what what sort of things were you what were you doing what were you finding comfort in was it just being outside of the club was it something was it like a release for you because i think one thing that um people would would definitely understand not just in footy but in life that anyone that's an athlete and, and we say that's a lot in the show but an athlete isn't someone that just plays footy it's someone that's competitive and has drive mm. it's it's hard to turn off the switch when you work so hard and you, and you dedicate your life to something and you have this supreme work ethic and competitiveness that yeah. often then translates to off field and you do that in the same thing you're doing, even if so, that is negative things. Well, Sorry, just to, I'd yeah. say for like music, I then started, I really dove into, but the, the immediate thing that happened after that was I kind of assumed this spot as being like that disgruntled resis player. Like, you know, there's different kinds of people at each club and that's one of the kind of, I don't know, roles you can fall into. And, I remember the start of the following preseason. I, along with a couple other guys in, in a similar position, just organised these drinking events for every Friday night. So we'd train Monday to Friday in preseason and have the weekend off, and we'd organise these big piss up drinking games for Fridays and use that to get us through, and then use that to like completely write ourselves off. And it was like we I, we played stumps in four weeks in a row. We played stumps. We did wizards. Um, then we did Centurion, which is like 100 shots in 100 minutes, which, you know, was not good. And then pub golf. And we like went all out trying to plan these things. And yeah, I mean, there's some funny stories to it, man. Like Wizards, for example, we had this we had this blazer that we that we bought from Vinny's. And on the blazer, if you won Wizards each year, you got your name embroidered. If you won, star, uh, if you were best on on footy trip, you got your name embroidered. So Dean Towers put his name on it three times because he voted himself <laughs> best on on footy trip. Um, and you know, like there, there's some good names on that blazer, man. Like, uh, not saying what for, but you know, like Tommy Mitchell's on there, Toby Nankivis, like some good guys are going through the Swans, um, <laughs> like some elite names. That's a good list to be a part of. Um, but you know, like, just that was kind of our bonding to comfort each other. But I remember, like, with Wizards, it was how fast can I build this staff that's as tall as me, like with with cans, um, or like pub golf for example we we had like printed scorecards with all the pubs we were going to we had all these rules we all dressed up as golfers and, and walked around paddington playing pub golf and it was meant to be 18 holes but after seven holes i like couldn't walk because i was so a bent on winning something and b kind of just wanted to like drink a lot of this pain i was feeling about footy away so 
yeah, there was a lot going on there. Do you think a part of these as well, and, and speaking from experience when I was younger, and, and I think this was pretty prevalent when I was at Carlton, like I, I probably couldn't get the respect I wanted um, on the field. So I just wanted to be liked. And that yeah. was like a massive part of me just, you know, being an idiot. Like I'd, I'd do stupid shit just to, to somehow maybe impress people. Um, yeah. And, and just, I was just so stupid, like being Man. young, just thinking I, I just wanted to be liked instead of being respected and, and didn't ha- know how to get it. Yeah. I saw if, if I couldn't get respect on the footy field from people, cause I, I felt like I didn't have that. I was like, well, I'm going to be the piss head at this club and I want them to be like, BJ doesn't care about footy. He just cares about having a, having a crack on the piss. And, and you know, that's why he's not playing seniors, not cause he's not good enough, but because he just mm. doesn't care enough. Um, I, I fell into that massively. It's a big thing, isn't it, man? Like it's it's nearly like a lot of people do this. It's like you, you're nearly giving yourself an out. Like yeah. you, you're, you're pretty much burying yourself before you're even giving yourself a chance. And I think you, we really do this a lot. It's so like, you know, if I don't care about something, then I can't be hurt by it. That's, totally, that's totally what I was doing. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I know a few guys that did it and to hear, you know, that, you recognize that other people do it too. It kind of makes me feel a bit like better in a way, but I wasn't the only one doing it. Oh yeah. No, I don't think it is, man. And I think there's plenty of people out there that would do this and, and to be able to reflect on it now. And that's, that's like a big thing. Like I'm going around in circles today. It's nearly like a, a bloody therapy session for me. But <laughs> I think that a lot of these things you look back on, you go, fuck, I was such an idiot. But in a way it's, it's made me who I am now. So like, I'm really thankful for it as well. Well, yeah, you don't list like it's, <sighs> It's maturing in a way, but you know, like they do tell you at the start of your career, like you, you might not, you probably won't be the guy that plays X amount of games. Like they warn yep. you about that stuff, but the way we're geared and the way we kind of hone ourselves as athletes is to just deny that and reject it. And I don't know, maybe it's sharing that story in a different way um, or sharing more of those stories will, will help people understand it. But yeah, it's, it's just a natural thing, I guess, to do at the time. Episode 95, Mark Wales. What, I suppose, are some of the stories that you would reflect on now being like some of the most intense uh, tours or or missions that that you were a part of? Um, One for me was one of the first missions I did uh, on my first deployment over there. It was, uh, we were asked to clear the Chora Valley and it was in late 2007, and I talk about this actually in the book because it was the first time we, we ran into a heavy combat um, on a mission. And basically we went in there to run this clearance. There was kind of 80 to 100 Taliban, I think they were saying. And our team was doing all the advanced force operations. So we were going behind enemy lines, looking at what the enemy were doing, trying to figure out where they were. So that when the mission came, we were, we were ahead of the curve already. Um, and on the first morning, we kind of inserted in the dark and got set up and... Um, in the morning, all the clearance force landed and took out and started clearing through the, uh, the, the section of the valley that we were in. And uh, me and my team picked up and went to another part of the valley further south to put in basically an ambush. And as we're moving down there, we ran into uh, Taliban kind of defensive positions. And um, that started a battle that, that went for, for a long time. And we were, it took us till that was in the morning. We didn't get out until that night. So we were in there for a long time. And uh, ended up being a heavy battle. Um, one of my team leaders was shot and killed in the opening kind of minutes of the battle. And I mean, we train for that all the time. We say, if we have a man down, this is what we're going to do. We're going to move him. And, and so we had to change our whole mission kind of on the fly to, to try and get 
this guy out who'd been who'd been shot and badly wounded. So it was full on. It was full on. How? No, look, I, I suppose I know the answer to this, but how do you deal with that? Like sudden change straight away. Do you go straight into like autopilot of training? Is that how? Like you're, you're so much in the moment that you go fuck. This is what we need to do next. Yeah, I think that there's almost like a cutout switch in your mind. There's so much happening that you're like, all right, there's a lot happening that I'm just not going to deal with right now. We're just going to do, we're going to do one thing and then we're going to do this thing. And you're looking five seconds into the future sometimes. You're just like, I'm just going to survive through this bit. I'm going to jump in this ditch and then I'm going to, uh, you know, speak to this guy. And you're, you're making decisions in tiny increments because you know to survive, you've just got to get to that next step. And then once we were kind of secure, that's when you start thinking about how to move troops around and how you're going to suppress the enemy and how you're going to get helicopters in. And and that's, I guess, where you go from just trying to survive to, all right, now we, we really have to come up with a plan to, to defeat what we're dealing with. How did you – are you allowed to go into context of how you did get out of that scenario? Like what, what ended yeah. up transpiring? Um, so what we did was – we all pushed up to this kind of uh, this low ditch called an aqueduct. It's it's kind of knee height or waist height, and it's just enough cover to get in there and get protection from gunfire. So we were in there, um, we were pinned down, dealing with a casualty, and we got there were two Apache gunships. These are attack helicopters. They're above us and on the Australian side, or were they from the Taliban? No, Australian side. Yep. I'd be worried if the Taliban were driving those. Yeah, things, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'd be in real trouble. But. Um, we, we had attack helicopters above us and some of my guys was talking directly to the helicopters and marking the enemy positions with smoke. And so I, all this was happening as I was trying to move troops in place. And uh, I remember hearing the first kind of uh, cannon strike go in on the tree line, kind of maybe about 100 metres away. It was pretty close. And uh, the tree line just bloody erupted in, in all this heavy cannon fire. And... Um, I remember seeing going, holy shit, if they're that close, then we're, we're in a bit of trouble. And so the, the Apaches were trying to suppress the enemy that were on the other side of us. And um, I kind of remember saying, hey, I think they're going to come around our flank. I remember talking to the, to the guy next to me. I think they're going to come around this, this flank in the river. And luckily, one of the guys in the team had a good idea about putting a sniper team up on, that, on, on basically a little hill, little section of high ground about thousand meters away to our left and they were protecting our flank they could see people coming up the river while we were in the thick kind of green belt thick vegetation and um, they started shooting in support of us so we had kind of uh, gunships firing on one flank and snipers firing the other and I could hear their kind of heavy rounds coming down the valley and um, and they were they were landing close to us like very close. I could I could kind of see the trees moving as the as the bullets were coming in from our snipers, and I was thinking they're bloody close because it's hard to see. Right, you try to stay low, it is hard to see enemy to your front. So you're trained to shoot at areas where you think they might be hiding. So we were we were basically just trying to get space and, and suppress the enemy so we could move a bit. And eventually we did were able to kind of suppress them enough that we could move this guy back who'd been hit and um, bring helicopters in to try and evacuate him and the helicopters that flew in this is in broad daylight now the helicopters that flew in flew over the taliban formation and they got they got shot up um you know they, they took about i think it was about seven rounds one helicopter took seven rounds and um yeah they landed and we got we got this this guy on and got him flying back to base but um unfortunately he'd, he'd already died he was he was badly wounded so how dangerous is this sas training um the selection training 
the, the, some of the training is really dangerous because it's done at a super high level. And the idea is it's, it's got to be at a really high level, live rounds, you know, in the dark, night vision, because that's, that's what we're going to face in combat. And so they don't baby you in training. They, they, we do it safely, but sometimes you're exposed to really da- dangerous situations. Um, you know, Black Hawk accident, uh, I think it was mid-90s, <coughs> two Black Hawks collided on approach to target. And I think it was about 16 guys were killed. Own, like, friendly... Uh, yeah, two helicopters, two um, two Blackhawks collided and a lot of guys were killed in that. I had a mate killed in the South Pacific in a helicopter crash, um, vehicle accidents. Um, it's dangerous stuff. It's really dangerous training. And um, before you've even gotten to combat, you've got to get through all that stuff. And, and we've got the names on the memorial of a lot of guys that died training. It's, it's um, risky. Transitioning out, as we mentioned, you're at Duntroon, instructing the youth coming through that are about to transition to the next phase of their journeys. Um, something that you know is is prevalent, I suppose. I'm not sure how common it is, but something that can be highly expected in, in a role that you've done and 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 face and done such a, a good job at is is post traumatic stress from mm. from these things. And um, you know, you've helped so many people with this post your your career in the SAS. Was it always something that you were passionate in talking about and helping people or was it something where you sort of only realised that you could actually help people by sharing your story? I think um, it's something that when I first knew I, I was dealing with it, I guarded it, I guarded it closely because I wanted to keep working in that space. I didn't want, to, I didn't want some uh, mental health issue taking me out of, out of that operational space. So I, I had to kind of deal with it myself. I went and, I went and spoke to a psychiatrist and a psychologist and some of them were helpful and some of them weren't but over years I had to basically um, look after myself I had not been looking after myself really and you have to I think when you've got this you've got to accept all right I need to understand what's wrong with me then I need to make all these small changes to my life so that it doesn't dominate me and I can still work Mm -hmm. and I think that was one of the hardest that was one of the hardest bits because you're just not trying to deal with that really Um, and it's not something I talked a lot about until I got out of the army and then went back into kind of keynote speaking. And I spoke to some companies about it and um, they really latched onto it. And I, I didn't realize this until recently, but it's actually, um, there's a lot of it. There's a lot of burnout. There's a lot of mental health issues, even in the workforce because of how we're structured now and smartphones and working long hours. It's um, people are burned out. And what's your messaging to someone that, you know, is, is suffering or is going through something like this? What helped you the most? Like you said then that you weren't looking after yourself. What were you not looking after yourself with? Was it just day-to-day things or giving yourself time to, to breathe or, um, you know, accept your story and accept your journey? I wasn't doing the basics, right? Like you, you, if you don't, if you stop sleeping, if you drink too much um, to try and self-medicate, if you're uh, not eating properly, all these things contribute to your overall physical and mental health. And I think I'd really taken a step back in that front. I meant to, you meant to be an elite soldier, but I wasn't looking after myself enough. So I went to one uh, guy that was a neuroscientist and a psychologist as well. And he explained the science of it. He goes, your, your mind, you've completely had to rewire it while you've been in combat. You've been overusing a really ancient part of your mind. And while you've been doing that, trying to survive, the more kind of more evolved parts have really taken a back step. They've been benched. So he basically said, we're going to rebalance you. This is how we're going to do it. We're going to concentrate on your diet, exercise. You're going to rest more. Um, you know, you're going to book a surf trip each year with your, with your mates and, and go out and have some fun. And I think being disciplined about that 
consistently is is hard to do so people get busy they stop doing all oh, that stop, stop exercising you know it's it's hard to do it to have the self-discipline to do that stuff consistently and that's that's kind of what i preach i'm just like just go back to basics look after yourself get some sleep episode 95 mark wales what do we end up at Rob Pattinson's house saying? Yeah, I've. Please tell me this story. This is <laughs> I was just watching Josh, Tenet. I was watching Tenet the other night, and yeah, I need right. to hear this story. Yeah, someone was. <laughs> we were with bag raiders or something. They. You said you didn't mean anyone. You just drop bag raiders in well, casually. Yeah, from Sydney, they're just okay. like the same as us. That's not. <laughs> yeah, we, they, they love it. They're great. We're all the next big thing. Yeah, but one one of our friends was was like a director, and he was friends with Sean. Penn's daughter, Dylan Penn. It's and my she, name. Right, there you go. Are you his daughter? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> and she was dating Rob Pattinson. So we'd been there. We got invited to the party. And to get, yet it was in like Mulholland Drive or something like that. And you had to go through the gated thing and say the password. And the password was his dad's name, Tom Pattinson. So, <laughs> <laughs> so now you can all get What's in. What's the password? Anyone going to Rob's yeah, house, yeah, Tom Pattinson. Yeah. yeah, so he said Tom Pattinson and we went in. And he was super wasted. And he, every time he would talk to any of us, he had, he'd sound Australian, then he'd sound American, and then he'd sound English. I understand that, though. What's that? Like some people you just you well, yeah, pick up what they've got. Yeah, yeah. I reckon they, I do I that. I guess you're like that as an actor, aren't you? Mm. He was so, trying to be method. That's what he told yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> he was trying to be method. He yeah. was like, so tell me, guys, what, you know, <laughs> These what's, guys it, are what's it like to be a musician? It, you know, what's like the greatest song? <laughs> it's just this weird. I'm like, oh, dude, shut up. Yeah. Oh, I think I've asked that question today. No, you're, you're fine, but he was just like kind of drunk and swaying around and trying to like, just give it up, mate. Um, but then anyway, so that was that night. But so then a few weeks, uh, maybe it was like a, a week later, yeah, we were at a Bad Graders DJ set in West Hollywood or something and it was like, right, another party back at Rob Pattinson's. So we Ubered back there and I was just Tom Pattinson really, now. Tom. Like been snorting heaps of blow. <laughs> so I was just really like – Ready to go. And we just got there. Tom Pattinson, yeah, yeah, let us through. And just got to the door. Like, I'm back. Rob, Rob. Like just banging. Rob. And no one came to the door, like ringing the doorbell. I was like, oh, fuck, I'll just open it. And so I just opened the door and I'm, it was in, just I'm open. in this living room just yelling out, Rob, Rob. And no one, no one appears. Poor so I'm Rob. like, oh, let's just. Let's just make ourselves at home. Everyone will be here here shortly. So we get in the hot tub. We've got a bottle of his tequila doing lines like off the side of the hot tub. And then about an hour goes past. It's five in the morning. We're like, no one's here. We've just broken and entered into Rob Pattinson's house, basically. Like, shit, we better get out before anyone, before anyone's find us. So we just go into the fridge, grab a few bottles of champagne and take some of his booze and then just... Cruised off, and I haven't oh, seen him since. <laughs> that is honestly one of the best stories I've ever heard. Yeah.